Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Monday, July 10th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, conflict of interest comes to light in the EPA Small Business Innovation Research Program. Plus, has the Supreme Court weakened the cause of whistleblowers? Plus, has the Supreme Court weakened the cause of whistleblowers? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, National Security Innovation Capital hit a milestone earlier this year. It obligated all its funds to investments by the end of May. The three-year-old program uses government funds for early-stage hardware companies that benefit the Defense Department. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr found out how it started and where it's going from the fund's director, Tex Schengen. So it's a response to a, a challenge that was recognized a few years ago that the country faces. And that is that there is not enough private venture capital from trusted sources that is willing to invest in very early stage hardware startup companies. The reasons for that are that hardware is technically a lot more demanding, a lot riskier, uh, takes a lot more capital and takes a lot longer before you have something that potential customers can really evaluate. So that whole risk profile is not very attractive to most venture capital firms until later stages where the risk has been reduced. The problem that creates is we have a lot of innovation in this country, great tech startups, uh, terrifically creative people, and they're struggling to find the funds that they need to take their big idea to the next step. And either they can't get that done, or as we were realizing, capital from our adversaries was stepping in to fill the gap. And that, of course, could lead to negative consequences for the company uh, and the technology going to countries that don't wish us well. And so when you step in to fund an early stage startup, are you partnering with other venture capital? Are you saying, if you'll do 30, we'll do 60? Or is it straight up government funds? So I think there are three different situations. Um, the first is that we come in before other private, before private venture capital firms are willing to. So we'll be the first serious money into uh, an early stage dual use hardware startup company. And if we do that right, they will take those funds and they'll develop their technology to the next major milestone um, in their product development plan that reduces their risk profile, and then private venture capital will follow on. So that's one model. A couple of the companies we've funded have had a small amount of, of private venture capital before we arrived, but it wasn't enough to help them go as fast as they were capable of. And so we come in a little bit after a modest amount of private VC funding. And then the, the third one is that we actually do almost simultaneously with venture funds. Our funds, our commitment to funding the company unlocks some VCs that were kind of just on the edge of whether they wanted to invest or not. And when we've made a commitment, then they say, oh, okay, well, DOD is really interested in this. We'll put our money in. 
I know in traditional venture capital, there's sort of a formula for failure rate. Do you have a failure rate? We're willing to fund these companies and a certain number of them are going to not do what we need them to do? We don't really think about it in quite that way. Um, What we look for is companies who are developing products based on uh, emerging critical technologies where we see clear applications in, in both commercial opportunities as well as in the Defense Department. We try to pick teams that we think are really capable of executing, and then we look to see if they will get to the next stage. Have they accomplished that development program? And that, to us, is the initial success. Did they actually deliver on the milestone that they signed up with us to accomplish? A second milestone is, do they go on to raise additional money if they need it from private venture sources? And eventually, do they actually get to market and sell products um, to both commercial and defense applications? We don't have a percentage goal there, um, but we don't have quite as high a bar as a typical venture capital firm would who looks only to fund so-called unicorns. And why did you pick uh, hardware specifically? Because that's where the challenge is. Software doesn't have nearly the same technical risk. Uh, doesn't have the capital requirements, you can mock up a software product pretty quickly and have customers begin to interact with it. And that takes a lot less time, a lot less, has a lot less technical risk, and you get so-called market traction much faster. That's just more appealing to the venture capital firms who are, after all, uh, financial investors. It's a risk-reward thing. Talking about this year, is it unusual that you would have obligated all your funds so early in the year? Yes, we had not done that in the previous two fiscal years. Uh, I think part of it is we're better known now than we were. Part of it is that we had a really good set of submissions from companies that we thought were deserving. And part of it is we also had some companies from the prior year And we didn't have quite enough money to fund them at the level that they really needed and could use. And so we came back to a couple of those companies with this year's money and added some additional funds. As you've gone through this process from when you started to now, are there things you are doing differently now than when you started? Not really. We had a, if you will, a theory about what this problem was and what our role could be. And we have been proving that out over the last three fiscal years, last two and a half years of operations. Mostly it was about getting launched. It was about setting in place our processes, putting our contracting system in place, um, just getting up and running. We were ourselves a startup at the beginning. And then it was to figure out, was our hypothesis really accurate? Do hardware startup companies need this kind of funding? Does our funding make them more attractive to private venture capital? Uh, Are they actually delivering on the milestones that they signed up for? And all of those things have turned out to be true. So, so far the formula is working. And how about sort of spreading the funds out? Do you do anything to make sure all the money isn't going to bigger companies or companies that are located around traditional tech hubs? Yeah. So we have five different topics of interest. Um, They're fairly broad autonomy, communications, power, sensors, space, 
there's a lot of overlap among those things and a lot of co-relationships among them. But we try to make sure that we fund companies across those five different topics. We don't focus just on Silicon Valley by any means. We now have funded companies in, it's either 10 or 11 states across the country. Yes, that's California and Texas, but it's also Indiana and Michigan and North Carolina um, and Connecticut. Uh, so that's been very important to us. National Security Innovation Capital's Tex Schengen talking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. You can find more of Alexandra's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, has the Supreme Court weakened the cause of whistleblowers? It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. A new Supreme Court ruling seems to throw a wrench into the False Claims Act, in particular the key Tom cases where a whistleblower stands to benefit from revealing false claims. It gives the Justice Department greater authority to toss out certain cases. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got analysis from whistleblower attorney Steve Cohn of Cohn, Cohn, and Calipinto. What precisely did the court rule here and maybe tell us a little bit about the case? Sure. So the false claims quitam is a unique type of law because it lets a whistleblower stand in for the federal government to protect the government from fraud. So the whistleblower can initiate a case and pursue a case against a fraudster, even if the federal government doesn't get involved. It's a historic procedure goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. It was used extensively in the colonies. And I think the first Congress of America passed 15 of these quitam type laws. So that's the issue. But the issue was, if the Justice Department, if the United States wants to throw the case out, what are the rights of the whistleblower? And at the bottom line, it's government money. So the whistleblower is trying to protect the government. But what happens if the government says, we don't want that protection, we want the case dismissed? That was what was before the Supreme Court. All right. And so in this case, then, it was a case where the government decided not to get involved. Exactly. The government moved to have the case dismissed and the whistleblower objected and said they just can't walk into court and have the case thrown out. The statute gives the government the authority to do that, but there's supposed to be a hearing. So the question is, can the judge overrule the Justice Department's decision? What's the purpose of the hearing? That's what was before the court, but that's not the issue today. Well, what did the court decide, though, just so we know? Sure. So the court decided that the government can have a case dismissed early on and that there's no dispute about that. But once the government says they don't want to participate in a case, you know, that they walk out without dismissing it, could they come back a year later after the whistleblower has spent thousands and thousands of dollars litigating a case? Could they walk in and say, toss the case? And what the court decided was the answer was yes, with a caveat. They applied a basic rule of civil procedure 
that lets a party have a case thrown out and sets up some guideposts. So at the end of the day, they didn't give the United States the complete authority to throw a case out. But if you read between the lines, the United States would be able to have dismissed almost every single case they wanted to applying the standard that the court set forth. And is that standard difficult? I mean, is this good for whistleblower cases or bad for them? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's our view. It's almost neutral because it very rarely comes up. I mean, this is one in a hundred, one in a thousand. So what was going on here, what the court had before them was a very narrow question applied to a very narrow set of cases. But that's not what occurred. All right. We're speaking with Stephen Cohn. He's a whistleblower attorney with the firm Cohn, Cohn, Colapinto. And this was an eight to one ruling. And it's the one justice dissent by Justice Clarence Thomas that's got you worried. Exactly. So Clarence Thomas does two things in his dissent. First, he says, you can't just throw out the whistleblower's case if you read the statute and the rules of procedure. So the first half looks like it's expanding whistleblower rights. But then he comes in with the curveball. He says, however, if what I say is true, and if what the eight to one majority said is true, we have a constitutional problem and the quitam provision may have to be thrown out in its entirety. From the founding of the republic. Yes, all the quitam laws, but also all other types of laws that empower citizens to defend rights. The most obvious is something known as a citizen suit, where citizens can file environmental suits against polluters to enforce environmental laws, even if the federal government is hostile. And what he's saying is, is this concept that only the president can enforce all the laws. We're not a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. He's rejected that. And it's a government of the president, by the president, for the president. Or at least of the executive branch. Yeah, exactly. what, What was his reasoning? What was the constitutional basis of his saying so? Okay, so the Constitution says Congress can enact laws. Great like the False Claims Act, like citizen suit. It also has another provision that says the executive will enforce the laws. The question is, is only the executive authorized to enforce the laws or can Congress empower the people to help enforce the laws? And if so, what are the guardrails? That's really the question and the concept that Only the executive can enforce the law, from my point of view, is not just authoritarian in nature, but is in complete and total conflict with the founding of the republic, the actions of Congress for 250 years, and the very principle of a government of the people, by the people, for the people, period. All right. But that was a single dissent and the other eight justices of all political stripes, if you want to put it that way, were of a different mind in this particular case. Are you worried that if a constitutional challenge was brought, there might be more people joining Justice Thomas? 
because this first case you said was very narrow, but if it was a general constitutional case, then you think it might flip? Well, that is where it gets even more troubling because this issue was not raised by any party in the case. Justice Thomas just came up with it in whole cloth, came up with his opinions on it without one brief being filed, without one issue being raised, and then two other justices who were in the eight-group majority concurred with Thomas that the entire False Claims Act may be unconstitutional. But that's not what they were considering. They were just simply voting for the merits of this narrow case then. Exactly. So it's kind of like when the Supreme Court issues a decision, you have the majority, you need five. That's the controlling precedent. But any judge can then write a concurring opinion, which is kind of their opinion. It's not controlling on the court, but it's letting everyone know what's coming next. It's a message to parties what to do, how to mold future cases. And you can do that through a dissent or a concurrence. And that's what happened here. What you will now see are constitutional challenges to uh, False Claims Act cases across the country. And that will result within a year or two of the Supreme Court hearing this case. And what's at stake is not just whether we're government of the people, but all other similar laws. And the big hit will be in the environmental area for citizen suits. So you can begin to see what might occur here, this sea change of like on the one side, corporations that don't want people meddling in their profits, exposing their fraud, filing cases against pollution. And on the other hand, the Chamber of Commerce and all their big business allies fighting to squash the ability of people to challenge their practices. And this really puts the democratic process at a real risk. I forget the Supreme Court justice that said the law is what we say it is, but it sounds like this is something that you expect to come up. Yeah. So what's critical here is the Quitam process is hundreds of years older than the founding of the republic. It was a basic well-established, unquestioned law enforcement tool that all the colonies were using that was clearly understood by every founding father, every founder of the United States. There were 15, I believe, could have even been more in the first Congress of the United States. This is how they were looking to enforce the laws. There has never been for 200 years, this never was questioned. Every court that has looked at it since has rejected it. Yet, all of a sudden, without any briefing, without any warning, three justices stand up and say, we have to go look at this historic practice. I guess now it's wait and see. It's going to be trench warfare. Stephen Cohn is a whistleblower attorney with Cohn, Cohn and Calipinto. We'll post this interview along with a link to his blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Still to come on Federal News Network, both the House and Senate have a lot to take care of and not that much time to do it. But first, conflict of interest comes to light in the EPA's Small Business Innovation Research Program. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. 
Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The Federal Small Business Innovation Research Program, known as SBIR, has aided neophyte companies in a variety of domains. The EPA is among the agencies with an active SBIR program, but there's a nagging problem. According to the EPA's Office of Inspector General, conflicts of interest in SBIR contracts. For more, Federal News Network's Tom Temin turned to IG Special Agent Nick Evans. So just briefly for the uninitiated, explain what SBIR is and how it works and how the contracts get let under SBIR. Absolutely. So the SBIR is a set-aside program for small businesses to engage in federally funded research and development. The goal is commercialization of an innovative product. Currently, 11 federal agencies and departments participate. The budget is 3.2% of the agency's extramural research and development budget. Total SBIR budget is approximately $4 billion across the federal government. And of that, uh, as of 2020, a little over half was provided in the form of contracts, while the other half was provided as grants. And how much does EPA have under its SBIR program? Approximately $5 million. Okay, so it's not giant dollars. Are these contracts, by the way, under the federal acquisition regulation, or are there separate rules for SBIR contracts? Yes, sir. They're under the federal acquisition regulations, but they also fall under the EPA's acquisition regulations. Right, so you have a supplement to the FAR that is just for EPA? Yes, that's correct. Okay, well, that puts you right up there with the Defense Department, so congratulations on that one. And what prompted you to take a look at the conflict of interest possibility in the SBIR contract? Well, we are focusing greatly right now on preventing and detecting fraud, waste, and abuse in EPA's programs to include their contracts and grants. You know, the EPA was awarded approximately $100 billion via the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. So we're actively right now looking for ways to prevent and detect fraud, waste, and abuse. The federal government's SBIR program has a history of fraud. As such, the Office of Inspector General is statutorily mandated to prevent and detect fraud, waste, and abuse in the SBIR program. And we identified concerns about conflicts of interest from previous OIG investigations. Got it. And so is a conflict of interest per se fraud, or could it just be an indicator of fraud? Yes, it's just an indicator of fraud. Okay, so you really don't want conflicts of interest then at all in contracts. And so how does it work? I mean, what did you find in this latest round of looking at? What did you look at and what was your sample and so on? So we identified four provisions and clauses in the Environmental Protection Agency acquisition regulation that related to actual or potential conflicts of interest that we felt should be included in SBIR solicitations and contracts. And just briefly, what was your methodology for this look-see? Sure. We uh, reviewed recent SBIR solicitations and contracts to see what provisions they contained regarding conflicts of interest. All right. And what did you find? What we found was that the provisions varied between solicitations and contracts and that the OIG's standpoint is that we wanted to include the strongest conflict of interest provisions possible to prevent fraud, waste, and abuse in the program. We're speaking with Nick Evans. He's special agent in charge of the Eastern Division of the Office of Investigations, part of the EPA's Office of Inspector General. And you did find evidence of conflict of interest in a couple of cases, right? Yes, we did. We identified two different criminal investigations that involved potential conflicts of interest. 
And what form did it take? I mean, who was the conflict with? Was it within the contractors or was it between EPA staff and the contractor? What was the format of it? In one, we had a husband and wife that one of them was representing the awardee that had received the SBIR award. And the other spouse was representing the subcontractor, which was a university. In another example, we identified a husband and wife team where the husband would represent the small business concern and the wife would be the senior scientist on the project. And on the flip side, they would flip those roles and be able to you know, apply for more SBIR awards. Right. So if they had said, for example, under the regulations, look, we're the same household here and this is how we're going about that, would that have helped the situation? Would EPA, have, should they accept that kind of thing? Or is it prima facie conflict of interest when two people that have differing roles are under the same roof? Sure. Our standpoint is the more information, the better. The EPA could make a better determination as to whether they would like to make the award if they had that information available. And just to clarify, in the solicitations that led to these contracts were those four provisions in the EPA FAR supplement related to conflict of interest. Were they included? Not all clauses were included. So it sounds like your recommendation is start including all those clauses. Yes, sir. Is that your major recommendation here? That's our recommendation. Our recommendation is just to include the strongest conflict of interest provision as possible to ensure that, you know, the government's getting a fair deal. And are there any mechanisms you think that the contracting staff can use to make sure people are following the provisions? Because, you know, if they're sort of liars on one end, just because something's in a solicitation doesn't mean they're going to follow that either. Yes, it doesn't. Uh, You're correct. However, I think that, you know, if, uh, you know, what we don't know is what we don't know. And that by including these provisions that hopefully folks will be honest and the government can make a better decision on whether they would like to make that award. Sure. And what was the agency or the program, the SBIR program's reaction to the recommendations and the report? As of yet, I'm unaware of their reactions. Okay. But we hope they agree, right, (laughs) in general? Absolutely. And you also, in the report, mentioned concern about SBIR dollars somehow ending up in the hands of companies in countries that are adversarial to the United States. And tell us more about that idea. You know, conflicts of interest could arise due to foreign financial ties or obligations where the contractor may transfer the innovative research developed from federal research and development funding to a country that's adversarial to the United States. And do we know that's happened at all, or is that just another one of those potentials that they need to be keeping an eye out for? It's certainly a concern. And by the way, to the extent that you know, what types of research and innovation is EPA after with its SBIR program? There's a variety of different topics. It is information that's available on the EPA website. But what we're looking for here is, you know, items related to clean technology, you know, the manufacturing of efficient and long-lasting, environmentally safe batteries, things of that nature. And maybe making smoke from fires disappear. Hopefully. Nick Evans is special agent in charge of the Eastern Division of Office of Investigations, part of the EPA Inspector General's office. We'll post this interview together with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, both the House and Senate have a lot to take care of and not that much time to do it. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Coming back from its holiday recess, both chambers of Congress have a lot of business to take care of before their next one. With nominations and appropriations on the agenda, as always, we turn to Bloomberg government's Lauren Duggan to relay all the details. So we're entering a three-week stretch before the August recess where Congress has a lot to do to make progress on some expiring provisions one this month, some in September, and some by the end of the year. So this is going to be a crunch time for both House Republicans and Senate Democrats to get their agenda through their respective chambers. Um, The big thing this week is going to be on the House side, the defense policy bill, which is always a key piece of legislation every year. Um, And that's probably what's going to dominate that side of Capitol Hill this week as they go through that massive piece of legislation. Yeah. What are some of the ins and outs of negotiating going on there? The bill itself was bipartisan coming out of the House Armed Services Committee, but what are they trying to figure out the nitty gritty details of? Right. So the final vote in the committee was, as you said, very bipartisan, only one no vote. That, I think, masks some of the disagreements between the Republicans and Democrats on some of the finer points of that legislation. And as we'll see this week, more than 1,400 amendments were filed to be considered. Not all of those are going to make the cut. But some of the ones that have been proposed so far could be flashpoints between the parties, everything from Ukraine aid to DOD and abortion policy and what to do about diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI programs that have been kind of a flashpoint in spending bills and in this authorization bill as well. So I think as that bill hits the floor and people talk about the provisions that are already in the bill, some things like curtailing some DEI policies and then maybe other policies they want to see added, that's going to be potentially a heated debate. And they still have to get a majority from Republicans and Democrats to get that bill through and to get each of those amendments through. So there might be some complicated math as they figure that out. In terms of the broadest picture of the bill, the $886 billion or so that it would authorize, there's agreement there between the House and the Senate on that top line. So that might make a final bill a little bit easier. They're not arguing as much anymore about the defense side of the budget. Um, But as we see, non-defense spending is still going to be a flashpoint. But this bill has so many provisions in it, so many pages, and is attractive for other issues, even if they're not directly related to defense, that it's going to be a key thing to, to watch this week as that plays out. Yeah, particularly the Pentagon abortion policy. We've already seen that issue have a ripple effect in other areas when it came to congressional defense responsibilities. Are they going to be able to get past that? Because it's been a real sticking point. It has. And in the Senate, I think you're referring to Tommy Tuberville, who's the Alabama Republican senator, former football coach, who has been holding up most DOD nominees while this is playing out with the abortion policy at DOD. So he's he can't hold them up forever, but the steps that Senate Democratic leaders would have to take to overcome his holds, as it were, on each DOD nominee would take a considerable amount of time. A big nomination they have to deal with is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, President Biden sent up a nominee. There's going to be hearings this week. I would assume that they're going to try to push that through as fast as possible. They may even be willing to take the lengthy floor time to process that nomination. But there are a couple of hundred that need to be dealt with that are just languishing right now as long as there's not an agreement to move them faster. So that is still going to play out over the coming weeks. Speaking of Senate nominations, uh, as you mentioned, there are plenty to go about. Uh, What is on the schedule for next week? 
The first vote we'll see is on uh, uh, Tori Small to be the Deputy Secretary of USDA. She's a former House member, is already at USDA. This would be kind of a higher level job for her. That's the first big vote. And then we'll see some others for the head of the Violence Against Women office and then some more judicial nominees on the Senate floor. In the committees, there's going to be a markup on some FCC nominees, so more action there. And then the one that's been in the background, and there's a lot of questions going into this work period, is Julie Sue to lead the Labor Department. That nomination has not been solidified yet because there's questions about some of the Democratic support. With a 51-49 split, they can only afford to lose so many Democrats to imperil a nominee. So we'll be checking again with senators when they're back in town to see what they want to do on that nomination. But it's it's been a tricky one, to say the least, at getting her through. What can you tell me about the Violence Against Women office since, you know, that was President Biden's you know landmark legislation when he was in the Senate? And it's usually been a pretty bipartisan issue. I imagine, you know, the the pick forward to run it is probably not as controversial as others. It might not be, but, you know, sometimes what happens here is it's just processing nominations can take time. If any senator has an objection, that can require them to jump through the steps of filing for cloture and then taking the days and the time to get that through. So uh, I'm not 100% clear on the particulars there, but um, this is one that couldn't sail through on a voice vote or unanimous consent, so they're just going through these steps. But uh, often you don't schedule a vote in the Senate unless you think you can win it, um, which is one reason I think that they've held off on, for example, Julie Sue. They haven't been sure they could win that one, but we'll see if that one can clear that hurdle this week in the Senate. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan from Bloomberg Government, and are there any other major appropriations or, you know, even minor appropriations? Whenever you're talking about appropriations, it's usually big dollar figures, but minor in the scope of government spending that are on the uh, House and Senate docket. Not yet to the floor. Um, There's been a good amount of committee activity so far with at least a half dozen or so through the House Appropriations Committee, more through subcommittee. And then we saw two get through the Senate panel before they went on this two-week recess. So they're going to pick up with that again this week, try to process as many as they can. We're seeing so far as that divergence, as I mentioned, with the House still looking to bring down non-defense discretionary spending to fiscal 22 level. So a cut given that there was a bump up going to 23. And then um, the Senate pretty much sticking to the spending caps that they agreed upon with that debt limit deal that we saw with a flurry of activity earlier this year. So that's one divergence point. Uh, The other is going to be, what riders do you attach to this? Um, As I mentioned, DEI issues have come up a lot in the House so far. Also, uh, critical race theory and trying to prevent government funding from being used for that. That language has been in the House bill, not so much in the Senate bill. But as they get to more of these bills, we'll see if the rider language gets more complicated there as well. But September 30th, not that far away. Not a lot of work weeks left before that. So, you know, right now they're talking about full year bills and the all the line items, but at CR talk or continuing resolution discussions may not start in July, but that's always going to be in the back of people's minds. How quickly are they going to have to turn to that and make sure that they can keep the government open after September 30th? Let's talk about an issue that's probably near and dear to a lot of politicians' hearts, uh, since many of them are fans or play it. Uh, what is this I'm hearing about a PGA Tour live golf deal hearing and how much of this is just politicians hoping they can meet some of their favorite golfers? <laughs> uh, I don't think there's going to be golfers at this hearing, but the obviously it was blockbuster news when the PGA Tour and Live Golf, which is backed by a Saudi investment firm or Saudi investment company, I believe it is, announced that they were going to have a deal to come together in one umbrella organization along with, I think, the, the European Tour. Um, there's a lot of interest in this because it's foreign money and foreign investment in an American product. Some concerns about that 
that, obviously, among lawmakers who want to know more about it. So we're going to hear from people who are involved in the deal making more than golfers right now. But I think this is the first of many hearings we're going to see. This is in the Senate Homeland Security Committee. I could see the House doing something on this as well, because it obviously provoked a lot of reaction from folks. But um, sports sometimes come to Capitol Hill and you get that interesting cross section. And that's what we'll be seeing, at least in that hearing. Yeah, and it, it, it's all just about the Saudi money in there. There's no, I know that sports kind of has a little niche carved out where they aren't liable to antitrust regulations, but uh, is that among the concern as well? I mean, I could see that coming up because you have all these differing tours coming together under one umbrella. I'm sure that might be one of the things they bring up. And sometimes that's why Congress pulls them in because of antitrust exemptions. That's why you can get them in front of you to talk about these things. So, um, like I said, not the first sports hearing we've seen on Capitol Hill and undoubtedly not the last, but a big issue for sure. And, you know, I guess we'll see more ESPN and sports desk people kicking around the hill than usual when that one's happening. All righty. Lauren Duggan, Bloomberg government, as always, thank you very much. Thank you. And you can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Now, the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, July 10th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, conflict of interests comes to light in the EPA's Small Business Innovation Research Program. Plus, has the Supreme Court weakened the cause of whistleblowers? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the State Department is looking at artificial intelligence and automation tools to process Freedom of Information Act or FOIA requests more quickly and improve its level of service to requesters. The department is also looking to help other agencies streamline this work, considering the federal government received nearly a million new FOIA requests last year. For the latest on these efforts, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the department's Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Office of Global Information Services, Eric Stein. The themes we're seeing are just the increasing number of requests. That's one factor. The growing volume of electronic records and data and actually inadequate tools to search and review those large volumes. What we found is that there are tools in place that are being pushed to their limits and and, and, and a lot of assumptions about how records are captured and stored and searched. And it's still very manual. So how do we understand that? Forgetting even AI for a second, do we have the right tools? Are they interoperable and so forth? Another big one is interagency collaboration can be a challenge from a technology perspective. That's not to say agencies don't get along or anything like that, but rather a lot is being done via email. It's not like we share, we all have the same IT tools to re- review and redact for case management and so forth. It's it's a lot of email that's inefficient. For those working with classified information, the national security community, do they have the right tools and enough employees to process this information? And what I mean here is it's a challenge to get people to go to the office right now. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing because I'm not I'm pretty open minded on the whole telework has really helped keep case processing moving forward. But classified work still needs to be primarily done at work. And because of that, that's a balance. And how do we recruit and retain people if they maybe don't want to go to the office? 
and then just looking for shared solutions and best practices. Uh, so we were able to find sometimes an agency's had a problem and we're connecting those professionals together. I think the other thing I'd just close with is the tech committee has a series of working groups. Maybe you've seen our site and we have charters and scopes. I mean, so much is tied to technology now. One of the things is we've scoped out what we're focusing on and we do a couple ad hoc projects and we do outreach to uh, different agencies, FOIA Advisory Council, public and others through different speaking events. Okay, great. And you were saying that data is kind of a really major element of everything that's going on right now. Can you unpack that in a little bit more detail? You know, obviously, data has been kind of the lifeblood of a lot of what you guys do. But how is that more increasingly relevant now than it's ever been? I mean, it's really been the past 10 years or so, we started thinking about what are data standards for capturing records, metadata, and so forth. And then, you know, just, just speaking of what we've done at state, when we developed our current e-records archive, uh, which captures all of our state.gov email, has 3 billion records in it. We developed it in such a way that the data standards are in place so we could use that data down the road. And I think a lot of agencies probably have Outlook and different email tools, Google Suite, whatnot, but they may not have a central archive where they can kind of search across the same way we can here at state. And so we took advantage of creating a records platform on our unclassified, one of our classified networks that would have interoperability with other tools, including our FOIA tool, and to think about potential machine learning and AI use down the road. Fast forward from when we created that system about maybe like five or six years now, we're now just starting to see what we can do. In our chief FOIA officer report, we talk about the machine learning AI work that we've been doing in our D-class program. And that's only possible because we put that thought into the records. So these aren't quick fixes. They're major sea changes. And, and I think the mandates from OMB and NARA to manage records played key roles in that. We took that very seriously. We've complied with those requirements. And now getting out of compliance, we could actually do like fun forward-leaning thinking of how can we, if we have the records and information, how do we now use technology in more advanced ways to get responses to the public or whoever our customers are? One other thing on data, you know, we work with our chief data officer very closely. You may see like there's chief information officers, chief data officers, folks like myself who do the, the information records management and the, the requests that come in. I think it, having relationships among those different offices is important. And every agency set up a little differently. So they're not always, those relationships are sometimes closer than not. And so just start to understand the role of these different senior officials and their staff and the teams that work together is important. We're talking about the opportunities and I guess some of the anxieties around AI. And I think this is something that is being dealt with kind of at all levels of government here. But in terms of the standards, the baselines of what, one, we're even talking about when it comes to AI, and two, the standards of how well it works, how reliable it is, can you tell me a little bit more about how kind of the standards are being set there? You know, what the talks are like at this point? I think it's uneven across agencies right now. A couple of years ago, as I mentioned, we tried to just start introducing what is AI. One of our members had a session AI 101 for FOIA professionals or something like that, where they came in. I think we have to do that session again. I think people are afraid of AI and maybe, maybe they should be, maybe they shouldn't be. But my take is we'd like to get people comfortable with the concepts of AI and machine learning. I think that's probably the most important thing, getting people comfortable with the concepts of AI and machine learning, understanding what it is and isn't. Because I've seen a lot of really interesting technology examples where people are like, well, we'll just have AI do it. I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe. But like, again, going back to like, if you don't have the underlying data sets and records, getting people comfortable with the concepts. The next is looking at records and records include data, 
it includes the records themselves and, and the information and everything in between all the iterations th thereafter and understanding what do you have and what would you need moving forward? I think this gets to your standard questions. I think we're just now at that point having that discussion. I think there are other councils outside of the FOIA community looking at this. You have the Chief Data Officers Council. You have a couple AI bodies in the government looking at this. But for us right now, I mean, it, the challenge of a lot of agencies, especially if you have diverse record types, is one size won't fit all. You're going to have to have several different solutions. For example, if you're an agency that gets thousands of requests annually for a specific form, you may not even need AI machine learning. You may just need a simple tool or an application that could redact certain boxes or things that have like social security numbers or privacy information or things that, you know, legally should be withheld appropriately. But if then if you're getting into like emails or record types that have more of like narrative, one of the things we're seeing is it gets a little harder because you have to go through it so carefully to see whose information is involved. And on the one hand, I think it's a positive thing. Agencies share information a lot better. I think, you know, 20 years ago, one of the goals, agencies needed to improve information sharing. I think they have, but that's going to make it harder, not just to do FOIA work, but to also train a model AI and so forth moving forward. So I think there's a lot of potential. There really is. And to understand that there may not be a one size fits all approach, but there could be like several different shared solutions and then finding a way maybe for agencies to leverage their shared opportunities. Obviously the AI and the machine learning, you know, it is very exciting. There's a lot of opportunities there. I think there's a lot of excitement there, but you know, I think to your opening points here, there is a lot of variance in what people understand AI to be. The council recently had their technology showcase, I think to kind of maybe educate some people on what is out there, the art of the possible. In terms of that showcase and the education that happened there, what were kind of the goals coming into that and what are some next steps you guys are hoping to take from there? We wanted to tie the public sector and the private sector, give them opportunity to collaborate, breaking down some of those barriers and giving opportunity for, for government folks to listen to what the private sector can offer and also show, like, give an opportunity to the private sector to show. And we had different areas, including AI and machine learning. Hey, show us what you can do. We also wanted to think about customer experience in, in the virtual online world. How do we improve FOIA experience for, for everyone? I mean, just anyone visiting a site, requesters, and so forth. That was Eric Stein, the State Department's Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Office of Global Information Services, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You can find more of Jory's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, has the Supreme Court weakened the cause of whistleblowers? It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White, filling in for Tom.